Warning, this is explicit content. There is talk of murder. There is trigger warnings for child death. And so please be aware if you continue onto this podcast, onto this episode, it is a true crime episode. Hi, I'm Katrina. And this is Chloe. And this is Murder Obsessed. So, sorry about the hiatus last week, but life decided that um, it was going to throw us a couple curveballs, and so we had a lot going on, all three of us, and this week, our poor Sydney is homesick, so she is not going to be joining us on Murder Obsessed. We miss you. So, today is my case, and we are going to be talking about the murders of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. One dark night after being released from being held and questioned about a church burning that they had nothing to do with, three men set off in a 1963 blue Ford station wagon. Mickey Schwerner was driving. Schwerner had attended Cornell University and had brought integration into his Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity. Him and his wife, Rita, protested the trades in New York City and the refusing to integrate. The couple had moved to Mississippi to dive deeper into the movement. Riding shotgun was Andy Goodman, a fellow New Yorker who hailed from Queens College. He had grown up in a 10-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, which served as a haven for progressive politicians and causes. Goodman had dabbled in theater and was often on Broadway, acting before majoring in anthropology. He wrote papers that compared the rise of the African-American radicals to the rise in temperature that follows upon sickness. He joined the civil rights movement in 1964 after hearing Mississippi NAACP President Aaron Henry discuss both the plight of African-Americans and the disturbing silence of good people. In the back seat was the only African-American, James Cheney. He had become involved in the civil rights movement and he was suspended at age 16 for refusing to remove his NAACP insignia. He wore this suspension like a badge of honor. Cheney was a Mississippi native who had quit his job working for his father as a, a plasterer's apprentice and he had poured himself into Freedom Summer. So much so, he had not even been able to visit his unborn daughter yet. Now, I know I started this story with them driving together in a station wagon, knowing it it was to their doom, directly after being released from police custody, because I felt the need to explain why these three men were in Mississippi together and their purpose in the civil rights movement. The 1964 Freedom Summer Project was designed to draw the nation's attention to the violent oppression experienced by Mississippi Blacks who attempted to exercise their constitutional rights and to develop a grassroots freedom movement that could be sustained after student activists left Mississippi. Voter registration was a cornerstone of the Summer Project. Although approximately 17,000 Black residents of Mississippi attempted to register to vote in the summer of 1964, only 1,600 of the completed applicants were accepted by local registrar, 
highlighting the need for federal voting rights legislation. These efforts create a political momentum for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were a part of this project. They had went to investigate the burning of a church, but they were personally already on the KKK's watch list. Police, already infiltrated by the Ku Klux Klan, took these men under the pretense of questioning them on the church burning, even though police already knew who was responsible, as some had actually already participated. They were released and um, set into a and set barreling into a trap. As the men drove, a vehicle came speeding up behind them. In fear, they attempted to outrun them. The car soon started flashing its police lights. Their training had taught them that you pull over for law enforcement. It came as a complete shock when up walked Deputy Price, the very man who had pulled them over earlier that day. He ordered the three men to get out, to get out and to get into his car. They followed orders and a fellow Klansman took the station wagon. They drove to a remote road called Rock Cut. It was there these men were murdered in cold blood. Their bodies were then drove to a new site, buried 15 feet down in an earthen dam, which apparently is a dam made of dirt or earth instead of man-made materials or is mostly made of dirt and earth. Wait, so who murdered them? What did Deputy Deputy Price was in on it, but oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna go into detail of like what all happened. Um, but it was a lot of people. There were a lot of people. Yeah, that, that's I was trying to keep up with it. Um, there's so many names and people. It can get confusing. It will for sure because it's a lot. Now this horrific murder sickened Delmar Dennis. Well, why do we care how he feels? Well, you see, he, he comes into play. He quit the KKK right after these murders, but the FBI talked him into rejoining now as an informant. To Dennis's surprise, he rose in ranks and upon his return became a, pro, a province, province titan and, confident of the, and confidant of the imperial wizard, Sam Bowers. So I don't know how much you know about the inner rankings of the KKK, um, but I knew none. So I had to do a little bit of research. Oh yeah, I have no idea. I know that there's like a leader, but yeah. like, I don't really. <laughs> like they have a leader. Well, they, have, they have names, like their rankings have names. Um. So, um, supposedly the inner rankings of the KKK, the inner imperial wizard is their highest ranking leader nationally. State or realm officers were deemed grand officer, officers. FBI agents visited Bowers after the men's disappearance. Because right now, people don't know that Cheney and Goodman and Schwerner are dead. They just know they're missing. But Bowers denied knowing anything. In a Klan meeting, Dennis told the FBI that Bowers bragged that all the perpetrators would go free. On December 4th, 1964, agents arrested 21 Klansmen on federal charges. Their attorneys urged them to stay silent. While awaiting their time to be interviewed by agents, Sheriff Lawrence started laughing and the other men who had been arrested started laughing too. 
A picture was taken of this moment and it became a symbol of the nation's belief that these men would not be charged for their crimes. This belief rang true when six days later, the United States Commissioner and Meridian, Esther, Esther Carter, dismissed all charges. The federal grand jury did indict 19 of these 21 for conspiring to deprave Cheney, Schwerner, and Grumman of their civil rights. However, U.S. District Judge Harold Cox soon dismissed the federal conspiracy charges, except for those against Sheriff Lawrence, Rainey, and Deputy Cecil Price. So one thing that I, I learned while researching this case is... Um, and I might have it in my notes here somewhere, but people like the federal government doesn't charge for murder. States charge for murder. So like if you would commit a murder, which I think that there might be, um, like if you go across state lines and you murder in several things, but even then each state has to try it. The state is the one that has the murder charge. Um, so Mississippi was saying, we're not doing a murder charge. We're not going to do this. Of so course. the only thing that the federal government could do was to do conspiracy to deprive of their civil rights. Um, they mm. also had a conspiracy charge, but um, only the officers, Deputy Lawrence or Deputy Cecil Price and Lawrence Rainey um, had to deal with those. But the KKK thought that they were unstoppable until two years later when the U.S. Supreme Court concluded the initial indictments were proper. The next year, 18 went on trial and Dennis testified against them. The jury convicted Bowers, Deputy Price, Wayne Roberts, and four others. Jurors acquitted Sheriff Rainey and seven others. I'm honestly surprised that any were convicted seeing as how the jury was Southern white men. Bowers went to prison for the most time. Out of all of these people, he received the most time and his prison sentence was six years. Oh my gosh. Most others served half or even less than that. But shortly after the trial, Dennis said white knights tried to kill him. Now Dennis was the informant. So he's saying they're, they're trying to kill him because he was an informant for the FBI. He'd exposed wrongdoings of Klansmen, but all of the men he had testified against were free and back home. So he put his life on the line to um, be a double agent for the FBI. And I mean, and nothing came of it other than- Yeah, now all these people are mad at him and they yeah, want no. to hurt him. Exactly, he has a target on his back. De Dennis was then run out of town. <clears throat> One Mississippi newspaper headline blared that he got paid $15,000 for testifying, making it look like he had sold his friends for money, not morality or disgust from the Klan's actions. Dennis had to move and lay low to avoid dying. Despite the swarms of FBI agents investigating, nearly every member kept their mouth shut. One of the killers, James Jordan, eventually talked, and in time, the Mississippi burning case came together. Detective Moore thought that he had all the evidence that he thought necessary to prosecute. But the governor told Moore that the state couldn't prose prosecute, AKA they were refusing to uphold its own murder laws. 
The governor told the FBI to prosecute, which meant that they had to be brought in on federal charges. So I did say this, there's no federal charge for murder. So they had to do the civil rights violation, um, even though it's a lesser charge and lesser penalty. The federal jury convicted seven of the killers. Now remember, 21 of them were originally brought in. Seven are now convicted on charges of depriving Cheney, Schwarner, and Goodman of their civil rights. Those convicted spent only a few years behind bars before their release, joining the other Klansmen who walked free. The Klans considered this a success, of course. White Citizens Council and the Klan chapters would spread throughout the nation in the 1950s and 60s. But nowhere were they more concentrated than in the South. In Mississippi, a chapter of the Klan called the Original Knights of the KKK, headquartered in Louisiana, kept recruiting. This wasn't the only problem, you know, getting away with murder. But there was also the issue of the government sealing, there was also an issue, an issue with the government sealing files that had to do with the Mississippi Sovereign Sovereignty Commission and the Mississippi burning. The SOVCOM was a state agency which operated from 1956 to 1977. It was overseen by the governor of Mississippi, the one who refused to uphold his own murder, their own murder laws. And it was pretty much created to protect the sovereign sovereignty. I know I'm saying that wrong. Sovereign, the sovereignness of the state of Mississippi and her sister states from encroachment thereon by the federal government. So lots of fancy words to say that its goal was to stop desegregation in the South. A government program. The SOVCOM had a file sealed for 50 years. Oh my gosh. Like how suspicious. Like yeah. with, with murders, like it had to do with the murder case, like Mississippi burnings. This was what this case is called. Literally, they sealed the court, the court case, like sealed files. Like that's not suspicious. Well, in the book I was reading, Race Against Time, he eventually uncovered that the commission and had Mickey and Rita Schwerner under surveillance and the police of two different departments were cooperating with the surveillance. They even had a spy in the mix working with activists during the Freedom Summer, feeding them names and addresses. I mention this because I believe it has a deep connection to the murder of these three activists. It did seem in 1989, they were looking to take this case to a grand jury 25 years after the murders. But once again, it seemed dark forces were at play when the case was stopped. Attorney General Mike Moore said too many witnesses have died. And despite the fact that dead witness testimonies could be used in court, the case was dead. Another decade passed with nothing significant until reporter Jerry Mitchell, the writer of the book that I've found most of my information from, Race Against Time, was telephoned about viewing the sealed Wizard Sam Bowers interview. Bowers was behind bars for life due to his role in the Vernon Dahmer murders. This is another case where he, you know, killed someone. Bowers had been released from jail for his part in the Mississippi Burnings case. He had given a long interview that was still sealed, but had been 
subpoenaed for the Dahmer case. So even though it was sealed, because it had been subpoenaed for another court case, it could be viewed public it, publicly, but there were like lots of loopholes to get through. Um, because the author of the book that I read, Race Against Time, he was a court reporter. So he kind of like was able to get his, his fingers in where um, lots of people couldn't get a hold of stuff. So the most important part of this interview was the fact that Bowers laughed about the fact that the real mastermind being behind the Mississippi burnings was out walking free and clear. Soon, the light was shined on Edgar Ray Killen. Killen was a logger as well as an investigator for a lawyer. He was well known for jury tampering. Neshoba County locals regarded Killen as a hardworking man and a godly one. He actually was a preacher at a rural Baptist church. And because he was so popular, he even did sermons on the radio. FBI investigators had assembled an almost embarrassingly wealth of accounts. And among the most revealing documents were two 1964 confessions from Klansman James Jordan and Hor Horace Doyle Barnett, who had told the FBI who the FBI, the FBI investigators had opened this and looked at the up-close story of the Mississippi, Mississippi Burnings murder. At about 6.30 on summer's first day, June 21st, 1964, James Jordan and a small group of men sat inside the Longhorn Drive-In in Meridian. This is what the case said. This is what the confession said. As the men sat and killed time, preacher Killen pulled up in a, in a fellow Klansman's 1959 Chevy. He was agitated. He told Her Herndon, James Jordan, and others that were gathered that three civil rights workers had been arrested and that they were being held in jail in Philadelphia. This is in Miss Philadelphia, Mississippi. When I first read that, I was like, wait, what? But there's a Philadelphia, Mississippi, apparently and that they needed their asses tore up. That's his quote. He needed four or more Klansmen to team up with others from Neshoba County. Jordan helped gather recruits grabbing fellow Klansman Wayne Roberts. They brought leather gloves because they couldn't find any plastic gloves. That was something that kind of cracked me up when I was researching this. They went to get like, latex gloves you know so they wouldn't you have their fingerprints on anything but they couldn't find any so they just all <laughs> bought leather gloves I, I mean like, I guess it works I mean yeah I was like well I mean I guess it serves its purpose but okay um they had a plan and they were ready so one car carload of Klansmen headed out for Philadelphia and the second car followed Killen told Klansmen that he had a place to bury them and a man to run the dozer to cover them up. He then had a fellow Klansman drop him off at a funeral home so that he could establish an alibi. It was about 10.30 p.m. when Cecil Price was released. When Cecil Price released James Cheney, Andy Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner. The deputy walked them to their car. Are you into fun, unique, and expressive earrings? Listen, I am 
utterly obsessed with this shop. Every time I look on their Etsy shop, there's something new. They not only have holiday-themed earrings, but they also have LGBTQ, witchy, career-themed, vintage, and so much more. Go check out their shop, locally owned by Maris, who is one cool chick. They are on Etsy as Anomaly 8 Designs. Go check out their shop, because you won't regret it. The deputy walked them to their car and told them to get out of Neshoba County. Price pursued, as did other Klansmen. They were soon going 100 miles per hour, but when Price flashed his lights, they stopped. Wayne Roberts jumped, jammed his pistol into Schwerner's head. Oh, no, that's a lot. They got him out of the car. They got him to um, the place where they were going to kill him. And Wayne Roberts jammed his pistol in Schwerner's head and pulled the trigger. Roberts returned to the car and grabbed Goodman and put him um, right beside Schwerner. James Cheney took several bullets, one in the abdomen. Now, remember, he was the only actual African-American, James Cheney. He took several bullets, one in the abdomen, one in the back, one in the skull, both from Robert and jo Roberts and Jordan. Jurors never heard this full statement from Jordan and Barnett because Judge Harold Cox stripped the Klansman's confession of every name except Barnett's and Jordan's because I think they were testifying. An unexpected break happened when Cecil Price was brought up on unrelated charges. He only received probation and community service hours, but this meant he had to cooperate with the Mississippi burning case, and he did. Now remember, this is 35 years after this has happened. He confirmed everything, especially Killen's part in the whole affair. Another hope sparked when it was discovered Killen had tampered with the jury as well as a new witness to discuss the murdering of Schwerner and the others. As the attorney general put together a case, suspects and witnesses started dying. One suspect, Sharp, a man reportedly a part of the mob that killed the civil rights activist, died. The man who drove the bulldozer who covered up the dead bodies, Herman Tucker, also died. Then the worst news hit. Former Deputy Cecil Price died after fracture in his skull. Now their key witness was dead. Key investigators also died. Retired FBI agent Joe Sullivan, who, who would have also been a likely witness as well, while other investigators could testify in his stead, but no one had his encyclopedic knowledge of this case. Then former lawman Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, while people, then former Lawrence, former lawman Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, while people are dying, Killen was going to a different church every Sunday, standing outside, greeting people and telling them he needed their help. <clears throat> Once again, another key witness died. Bob Stringer committed suicide but it was very suspicious. On the 40th anniversary of the deaths of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, the town gathered together to honor their lives. The town was ready to see the killers prosecuted. Killen planned on being at the Mississippi State Fair and doing meet and greets. 
uh, reporter Jerry Mitchell wrote about it and there was outrage. So he decided he was not going to go because instead of, you know, getting him out there and getting people to feel for him, like, oh, he's a good godly preacher. People were like pissed. They were like, how dare you do this when, you know, everyone knows what you did. But finally, the grand jury convened in 2000, in January, 2005. And after interviews from Billy Wayne, Posey, Jimmy Allridge, and Jimmy Snowden, who each were going to federal prison for a few years for being a part of the mob that abducted and killed the civil rights workers. There was Olin Burridge, who is quoted in FBI files as saying, hell, I have a dam that will hold a hundred of them. And there was also Pete Harris, the KKK investigator, who was reportedly recruiting Klansmen that night for that night's work. Burridge and Harris had both dodged prison. The jury decided to indict Killen. He was arrested that day. Killen hired Mitch Morin to defend him, and Morin had him do many TV interviews to humanize him. He was also using the defense that Sheriff Lawrence Rainey and Deputy Cecil Price were the masterminds and that Killen was a coward at the back of the crowd. Then something crazy happened. Killen broke both of his legs. Because he was out on bail. He survived, mostly recovered, and was in a wheelchair for the case. Despite his lawyer trying to get his murder charges thrown out, his lawyer claimed that he was incompetent to stand trial. The judge threw this out, and the trial began June 13, 2005. Despite having several other health problems, the case continued, where the defense brought on people who gave alibis, and put doubt in the jury's mind about killing. Masterminding the death and put dur- doubt in the jury's mind about killing, masterminding the deaths. The prosecutor brought the family members of the three deceased to show the loss was still as fresh as the day it happened. They also were able to use all of the witness testimonies of those who had died prior to this trial. There was a lot of issues with um, the defense's or the prosecutor's witnesses, um, even though the pain was still fresh and it was still like, you know, we lost someone we love. And even though it's been 40 years, over 40 years, um, like they still deserve to be avenged. They still observe, they still need justice. Um, A lot of things were kind of hazy, like, where were you? And was the last time you talked to him? You know, like if you would think right now, when was the last time that I talked to my sister? This case is like very, very intricate. There's a lot of little details and I can see how that would get confused in court with so many moving factors and stuff. Well, especially with so many years in between, like this would have been an open shut case if it would have been like 2020 you know you you took people civil rights activists and you killed them and bragged about it because you thought that you would get away with it like open shut not that we don't still have racism because we definitely do but it would not have been the way that it was today or the way that it happened then but 
put 40 years in and you know there's so much like there's a there's a thing called false memories you know and like yeah. the way that you perceive something lodges in your memory different than the way somebody else perceived it and so adding in all those years like there were so many witnesses and so many people that were that lost family members all that and I'm sure even on like the technical side of it the records something could happen to those and they'd get confused or messed up or misplaced and it wouldn't be like today they have probably new organizing systems you know yeah that's what I think about because court is confusing anyways and put like a whole bunch of years and how many times did those files move or whatever well yeah because and they kept trying to try it that you know it wasn't like a one and done and they're like oh okay never mind like over the years they kept trying to bring this case back because it had you know justice had not been served so there was so much information like I could only put so much in this small amount of time to get out this information but like read that book like there's so much that it sounds is interesting that's why I haven't really been like I've just been listening because there's just like so much it is and there's there's so I mean because there were so many people that was part of the mob and so, like so many investigators and then so many different lawyers like mm -hmm. it was just it was crazy and like um one thing that the author was was talking about was like it was really ridiculous the way that they read um the dead witnesses testimonies in court like they were they were read monotonous like they weren't read like it wasn't giving the same effect as if someone was sitting there telling their story you know like when you talk to someone you have inflection you have emotion but when they were reading these testimonies it was just like a droning you know something that it's hard to not even like phase out of you know so like they, yeah. didn't, they didn't do a good job, um, according to Jerry Mitchell, they didn't do a good job of like really showing the, the pain and passion that needed to be shown. But justice did not turn a blind eye. The jury saw through the smoke and mirrors of the defense and found him guilty of manslaughter on all three counts. It wasn't first degree like the prosecution hoped, but Killen still left the courthouse in a jail jumpsuit just the same. The judge sentenced Killen to 20 years in prison for each life lost, a total of 60 years in prison, meaning that 80-year-old Killen would live the remainder of his life in prison. Woo! I know, I thought the same thing, but then I kept reading and I was like, really? Oh, shoot. Yeah. Okay, okay but this win was short-lived when he used his failing health and a $60,000 bond to walk free. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But rumors flew that the judge's life had been threatened and that's why he was being released. So there was rumors that Killen's brother or maybe brother-in-law, one or the other, had threatened the judge and that was how the judge was like, okay, yeah, I'll let you out because you're really sick. Uh -huh. But... Killen was too confident and was seen walking and driving. Was he faking it all to walk free? Well, all of this helped to get Killen's bond revoked and he was finally sent back to prison. Yay. 
I was like freaking I that? know like when I was reading like, it I was so close to the end because they you know they finally got killing it was the te- it was the they were in court it was at trial and then like he broke both his legs and then he like had a heart attack or a stroke and like all of these things just kept happening and I'm like I was just like reading this and I was like are th- like you can't make this up like yeah like well, you it's would like, it just shows the lengths that people will go to stay out of trouble but it's like you could have just not done what you did yeah yeah <laughs> not have to do all this extra stuff yup yup <laughs> so yeah it like I said there was so much that I left out of this so much that um you get a chance um it's actually a book called race against time and it has like, it has four different cases. James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner were, the, is the first of the four, but there are three others that I'm going to do slowly over the progression of our, mm-hmm. our podcast. But, um, I really like how it's more of the like technical court side of it. I do like, like learning about serial killers and what makes them tick and stuff and that side too, but it's like refreshing to like, see the other side of it too because I don't ever really go into detail about like the court case mostly because I don't really know what I'm talking about yeah it's but it is tedious like that that was one thing like you could tell that he was a court reporter because a lot of his information was like from court proceedings question and answer interviews like a lot of it was like you had to stop for a second because it didn't flow like a story yeah technical it was informational it was very structured but it was still a very interesting read and it was just just wild like these people just wanted to help people register to vote you know like they were literally down there just trying to help these people and these these men yeah so but yes that's the the case of the mississippi burnings James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. May they rest in peace. And so that that's what I got. Um, I'm not sure who's in the case next. Is it is it I think it's me? Okay, I was gonna say I think so. I think um I think Sydney did the nurse one last, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it was me. Now it's you. So um next week we will have Chloe telling us it's about gonna be who? A surprise, oh it's I a don't surprise because <laughs> <laughs> i don't know yet i love surprises okay <laughs> um but that's that's cool so i'm katrina and this is chloe and this has been murder obsessed stay listening stay obsessed but don't be obsessed with murdering bye bye do you have a leaky faucet that you just have left go forever do you have a room that the wallpaper is just hideous or maybe there's something going on outside that you've just neglected because you just didn't want to deal with it well the works company strolling sons that's who you need to call let them do the work for you general handyman and contractor there's not much that they can't do Call 740-502-9141 for a free estimate today. That's 740-502-9141 and tell them Murder Obsessed sent you.